When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's something happening that you cannot see, and it's occurring all over the planet, inside millions of people. The repercussions might be negligible, but they could be terrifying. A virus is changing, becoming different than it once was. It can infect better, grow to higher numbers, and spread easier. And it's threatening the world all over again. Welcome to the realm of variants. This week, we're going to hunt down the reasons behind the formation of variants and why they always tend to worsen an epidemic or pandemic. We'll also examine the COVID-19 variants and find out what they mean to our current fight against this virus. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to evolve your perception on one of the greatest tricks a pathogen has. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. It's almost like you're in a movie. You know, one of those in a faraway galaxy from a time no one can remember. The heroes seem to have gained control over the situation, and all appears to be back to normal. But then, out of nowhere, the scourge returns. People are thrown back into chaos, and this time, there appears to be no way out. The enemy has evolved to be stronger than ever. And now is their time to strike back. But rather than an empire, we're talking about something even more sinister. That villain is a virus. And its weapon is not a means of firepower, it's genetics. We call them evolutionary adaptive mutants, but you probably know them better as variants. Of all the topics we've discussed this season, nothing has led to more curiosity, more concern, or more consternation than variants. And for good reason. They have put our ability to end this pandemic at risk. They are leading to sickness and death unlike anything we have ever seen over the last year and a half. And they are potentially putting our greatest defense, vaccines, in jeopardy. And that is why I'm being joined by my colleague and friend Earl Brown. We once worked together for over 10 years and published together on the evolution of SARS and other emerging pathogens such as pandemic flu. He was also on our second episode about, not surprisingly, pandemics. He is a professor emeritus at the University of Ottawa and one of the world's best experts on viral evolution. You might even want to call him a Jedi Master of Genetics. What is a variant? Well, a variant is an organism that changes its properties in essence, but it's done it in a genetic way. It's got changes in its genes. So you have changes when you have reproduction. Those can change your biology and your, your progeny will have those changes that you had. And in that light, one thing I constantly hear about variants is, aren't they like children? Or is this something that's a little bit too much of an extrapolation? Well, it, it, there is some, some similarity to those concepts. They've got rearrangement of our genes, which we got from our parents. 
And so you've got inheritance of genes, and then you also have genes that change in the process. So they're a little different than what you got from your parents, because whenever you copy your genetic material, especially your, your gametes, the, your germ cells, the sperm and the egg, changes in the DNA when those cells are being formed can give rise to variation. You mentioned that there are properties that change as a result of genetics. How does genetics change a property, and why is this not always happening? Well, you always have the basis for change, which is essentially errors in copying, though there are certain parts of physiology that drive changes, actually make make some changes. So things like recombination, which happens between chromosomes when we form a, a sperm or an egg. And so those are processes that happen, and they can result in changes in genes if this recombination happens right in the middle of a gene. And the genes themselves get duplicated when you make cells, including germ cells, sperm and eggs. These are called fidelity errors. So we have enzymes which copy our genes called polymerases, and they're pretty good, but they do make mistakes. And these mistakes result in changes in the letter codes in our genes. Our genes are strings of nucleotides. And these nucleotide identities can switch through a mistake. In the case of DNA, one in 100 million, you'll get a change. If it's RNA genes, uh, they're going to change one in, in 10,000. Biology is good, but only has to be good within the limits required to make it work. And so these polymerases make pretty good copies, but every copy has some changes in it. And these changes, depending where they are, can lead to development of a variant. So you have the change going on all the time. But variants aren't always worthwhile at, at certain times. You have change and then you have environment. So environment is the place where the genes operate and those variants can be more or less use depending on what your environment is. So environment really is the key in order to have a variant come about. Well, that's right. Often variants are pulled out or their, their biology is beneficial because they give you a changed property, which is suitable in, in, your, in a changed environment. And those are the variants that then do very well, and they've reproduced better than the non-variants who don't have a property that does better in, in say, a changed environment. That sounds a little bit like Darwin, doesn't it? It's Darwin over and over and over again. And as uh, it's been said, nothing in biology makes sense without uh, considering evolution. You know, we're going to talk today about viruses, but everything in the living world evolves. It changes over time with respect to its environment. Does that then provide us with the explanation behind this term selective pressure that we're constantly hearing about? Basically, the reason that some of these variants are doing better is just that they're selected by the environment to do better. That's right. Now, variation, changes in DNA structure and that sort of thing is a relative constant, happens all the time. But the variants aren't a feature unless you change the environment. We evolve to suit our environments, and so we get very fine-tuned to them. But you change the environment, and then the tuning's not right, and that's when the variants come to fore. That's when a change property can give you a benefit in the new environment and allow that organism to be more reproductive. You have more successful progeny if you have a variation that suits a new environment. I think in that light, we really need to not only think about Darwinism, but the whole idea of probabilities. There's a term in science, it's called quasi-species, that essentially says every mutation could possibly happen, but maybe only one of them is going to come out to be a new lineage or isolate or variant or whatever. 
Well, that's right. So quasi-species came out of the viral world. When sequencing became uh, a routine procedure, they found out that most viruses were different from each other through a few mutations. And so they started the concept of quasi-species, a population of viruses is full of point mutants that have single mutations and they can accumulate more. And so you really have to think population genetics here, uh, and it applies to other organisms as well as viruses. But you've got a lot of variation or mutants, and they only become important if you see that they have improved the biological properties. So if you're sitting in your lab and let's say you've got a new virus and it's got a mutation in it, and you say, well, is this variant now with this mutation of importance, you can study it in the lab and say, well, does it make it grow better? survive better, go into tissues better, that sort of thing. But you don't know if your variant is going to be biologically relevant until you either do the experiment or watch nature in action. So any any variant which improves the ability to replicate will be found at an increasing frequency over time. So that means that the progeny are more successful than the non-variants. And so in the case of viruses, say coronavirus, where they where you have variants of concern right now, when they first saw those variants, people said, oh, these are very curious looking and we're a bit concerned about them. But without the data showing that they actually grow better than the other pre-existing variant types, uh, you don't have much to talk about. And you have to see that these variants are associated with an improved property. And so they increase in their frequency. So over time, you'll see one among millions or thousands, but you look a couple of months later and they're, they're like one among four. Well, you've seen that this, this variant has gain of function. It works better than the rest of them in the environment. And so that is a variant which has beneficial biology and will become a, a variant of, of concern or a variant, a prevalent variant. It's going to be the variant that's, that's predominant. I always get a kick out of papers that I've seen where they say that there's an intraday variability in quasi-species, that if you pull out sputum from somebody at eight o'clock in the morning, you may end up with a totally different group of variants than if you pull it out at eight o'clock at night uh, for flu and and maybe even for SARS-CoV-2. Quasi-species are amazing to study, but when it comes to those variants of concern, We really have to just let nature take its course and watch them come out of whatever is happening inside those individual people while they're being infected. Well, that's right. So coronavirus is the largest of RNA viruses. And RNA viruses tend to be small genomed, as I'm talking about the size of the genome. There's 30,000 nucleotides. And the the RNA polymerase makes an error about once every time it copies a genome, a little bit less than that, actually. Most copies of the genome have a single letter mutation in them. And so this allows you to have a, as long as your population is large enough. So if the if coronavirus is 30,000 nucleotides and you could change them to, there's four nucleotide types, it could change to any one of another three. There's three times genome length of single nucleotide changes possible. And in a population of coronaviruses, anything over about a million viruses will have all of those single nucleotide changes. And so mutations are the food which drive evolution. So viruses are eminently evolvable. Any any population of viruses over a minimum size, which is quite small, a million coronaviruses, well, that can be on your finger if you stick in your nose if you had uh, COVID-19, because you can have uh, 100 million infectious units per milliliter in tissues or in secretion. So 
there's lots of viruses, there's lots of mutants. So the mutants are there. And the question is, will you get a, a dominant variant or mutant type? And that comes down to, well, what is the, the environment? As you change the environment, and it does that mutation allows this virus to grow better, faster, or, or further, that sort of thing. The mutations are there, the evolution pushes on, and you can acquire one mutation at a time as you go along, but they're always there to work with. That's sort of a fact of life. And we saw the quasi-species in viruses, but quasi-species applies to every living thing on the planet. Uh, none of us are clones of anything, really. Even identical twins, though they start out with the same gene sequence, they have mutations in their cells as their blood vessels grow and that sort of thing. So there's mutations that occur even between identical twins. And every, every human has some mutations relative to some other mutations. So everything has some mutations in it, and the environment will change whether those mutations are beneficial, not beneficial, or deleterious for you. When we talk about variants of concern, there are two major reasons for thinking that there's a concern. The first one is that it may lead to a spillover or jump from one species to another permanently, kind of like what we just saw with SARS-CoV-2. Now, the other is that the variant actually makes the virus more accustomed to the host so that it has higher transmissibility. It replicates better. I mean, I'm sure this is starting to sound familiar. But my question is, which one is actually more dangerous than the other? It, it kind of seems like a chicken or egg. Well, yes, one is driving the other. So if we talk about COVID-19, this is a new disease in humans. Uh, we don't know its immediate ancestor, but the closest one we've seen is a bat coronavirus. And if you line up their genomes, they're uh, 96% identical at the nucleotide level, which means 4% different. doesn't sound like much, but since the virus changes about 1% over about 10 years, we're really talking about 40 years of, of evolutionary distance between them. This uh, bat coronavirus has picked up the properties, uh, and viruses are largely host-restricted. They grow in one type of host species or several types, but they don't grow in, in everything sort of thing. And there are there are tens of thousands of coronaviruses in a different animal species. And so there's lots of coronavirus out there. So how did this one get into humans? And so what we've seen from, if you look at, say, influenza and like the bird flus that are of concern, that uh, we find the ones that come into humans, they have become highly virulent for uh, farm poultry. So they have acquired, they are variants, they are virulent variants of avian flu that can kill poultry. And they've acquired a whole bunch of mutations within the farming environment. And so the farming environment is great for viruses because viruses uh, infect hosts and they infect all the hosts until they're all immune and then it's hard to reinfect them. But in a, in a farm, you keep adding fresh baby chicks. And so you're always supplying new host species. So you can break some of the biological rules. Generally speaking, viruses don't benefit by killing their hosts. You're, you're losing less, uh, less hosts to infect if you do that. If you have a virus that kills all the hosts, then you end up with no hosts sort of thing. But in the farmed environment, you keep applying hosts. So you get a large population of virus. The hosts are close together. They transmit high doses to each other, so groups of mutants. You let that go on long enough, and you get very virulent viruses. Those viruses are variants that have a whole bunch of mutations, using mutations in each gene. And they can now kill chickens at a high rate. These viruses 
are adapted to chickens, but they have an increased ability to grow into other species by virtue of the strength of the groups of mutations they've got. So if we come back to COVID, it's possible that the virus has become able to grow really well in some other species, which allows it to have extra biology to get into a species it normally couldn't get. So you get a super strong virus in one species, it allows us to get a foothold in other species. It may have been something like that, which gave rise to COVID-19 virus, SARS coronavirus 2. And so we haven't discerned where that is. We haven't found out there's a big gap. But presumably this virus gained fitness in some other non-human animal host and then got into humans with a fairly good biology in that it spread well, at least when we detected it, it spreads well and causes relatively severe disease. And now we've got this virus in humans and all of us humans are like babes in the woods. We have never had this serotype of, of coronavirus in us, so we don't have immunity. So this virus spreads freely without immune pressure in humans is doing so really well and now it's hitting immune hosts and so we're getting variants which are escaping our immunity are causing more aggressive infection because they grow better shed better spread better so these are value-added variants another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. ...that are selected by the changed environment and we're living with them now. Almost as soon as SARS-CoV-2 was discovered, there were variants. Most of them happened without any of us knowing or caring for that matter. But at least one got our attention. You might have heard of it. It's called the Spike D614G mutation. It's a code to denote how the variant is different from the original lineage. In this case, it is a change of one amino acid from D, aspartic acid, to G, glycine. And it happens at amino acid 614 of the spike protein sequence which, by the way, is 1,273 amino acids in length. But that one small change, a single point mutation, improved the virus's ability to infect our cells and transmit from one person to another. You see, that's the trouble with variants. They may appear to have insignificant or even inconsequential changes when you look at it from a wide angle. But as you get closer, you realize even one alteration can be a signal for trouble. And with COVID-19, there are now so many of those signals, it's hard to keep up. Earl Brown has been keeping an eye on the COVID-19 variants and how they have arisen over the course of the pandemic. He's not surprised that these variants have occurred. After all, when it comes to mutating viruses, coronaviruses are right up there with another famous mutator. Where does SARS-CoV-2 fit in when you compare it to the flu? Coronavirus essentially matches the flu. So flu, we've got our quasi-species made up of the point mutants that goes on, and flu has a segmented genome. So it's got eight pieces of RNA make up its genome, 
And so it can exchange those pieces with another influenza and you get what's called reassortment. So changing of genes, every time you change a gene, you pull in the entire history of that gene from that other parent virus into the new virus. And it also allows you to uh, pull in mutants from a particular gene and put them into a genome, which is your set of genes. Coronavirus can do this. It has a different mechanism. Its, its genome is a large piece of RNA, one piece one strand expressing all of its genes. And it has more than twice as many genes as, as influenza. It has your point mutations in those genes, and it has a process of recombination. It, the polymerase hops from one strand it's reading to another strand to read it, and that's how you get functional recombination, even though it's a little bit different mechanism of recombination. It's unique among RNA viruses because it has this recombination feature, and then it has the point mutations which occur whenever you copy an RNA molecule. So, and as demonstrated, these these variants are showing up with 23 nucleotide changes in, in a month or, or two sort of thing. So coronavirus can definitely keep up the, with flu as far as variation. And I think that's another thing that needs to be said is that these variations are happening constantly. We know the mechanism behind them, but that doesn't mean we're actually making them in a lab. We're constantly being told that this particular virus and however many others were made in a laboratory. And yet the variants that we see in nature are continually happening. And it's not like we're picking them up the next day that they happen. You mentioned that SARS-CoV-2 is 40 years separated from one. Last pandemic, 2009, had pieces from 1968. I mean, these are things that without proper surveillance could be happening underneath our noses or at least in our forests. And we're just not going to find out about them until they show up. Well, that's right. We live in a vast biosphere and it's amazing how many viruses we're washing and viruses really have if you fill your, your, your glass with tap water, you've got over 40,000 bacteriophages per cc in there. Seawater's got 100 times more. Uh, you know, there's viruses everywhere, and we've tended to focus on the viruses in fact, us, uh, our pets, or our food. And that's really the bias in what viruses we look at. We have a reason for looking at them because they kill our plants and that, that sort of thing. And so we've been very narrow, narrow view of what what we know about the, the viruses in nature, but there's viruses all over the place. They're varying constantly. And so people are speculating that SARS coronavirus 2 was a lab product. And of course, you can make coronaviruses because we've, we've been able to rescue them from, from cloned DNA for, for a couple of decades now. But it's got none of the marks you'd see uh, due to, to lab work. You have to have something you made it from. Nobody knows how to make a virus without relying on the virus sequences sort of thing. You can't make a new one that you want to. So no one's found the smoking gun that is the, the virus to which SARS-CoV-2 came from that was modified in a lab, which that's the critical thing. You have to find somebody who's got a close variant, something much closer than this bat virus, which is 94% identical. So uh, viruses are changing and this appears to be a natural product. We don't really understand where it came from, but it's some other animal, presumably in Asia, because that's where we first saw the uh, the disease jumping out. You know, it's rash to say it's it's a lab uh, product at this point because it doesn't have the data to, to support that, that claim. 
And I would suggest that the idea of having variants of concern that have greater transmissibility and potentially greater lethality suggests that if someone was making this in a laboratory, they did a pretty poor job of it. Well, if the idea is to make the most virulent virus you can, so then you're starting to get into it biowarfare. There are treaties that have been signed saying that you're you're prevented from making bioweapons or, uh, or making more virulent viruses. Uh, the fact is that we don't know enough about the biology of the virus to make these things from scratch. You can take viruses and mix and match them, take genes from each other, and generally you get things that won't, won't work when you do that. So you generally take a, a virus that works and you can make mutations in it. And that sort of thing. But if you uh, knew what you're doing, you could, you're not doing a very good job if you wanted this to be a really high killer. Reminds me of when you were on the last time, which was our very second episode. And we had you, but we also had uh, Dave Evans, who was the one who you know developed a virus by ordering it in the mail. You can't do that with this particular virus, can you? Well, no, you can order anything you know the sequence of, but you can't say... Uh, dream up something on your on your uh, on your notepad saying i'm going to make this virus and it's going to be a real killer because i changed this amino acid and that amino acid you know you can say that if you've discovered that in the laboratory but there's no a priori way of making these super viruses right now we're just to put a frankly uh too stupid to do that right now so do you think then that there's going to come a point where we stop seeing variants of concern that the virus is just going to continue circulating through the human population, figure out exactly the right version that it wants, and then just stay there? Or are we destined to continually have variants from now until whenever we manage to eradicate this virus? Well, that's a good question, and that's largely driven by environmental factors. So uh, we're talking about the variants showing up now that immunity is becoming more common in, in humans. As we become more immune, the virus may vary more to try to avoid our immunity more successfully as we change our vaccines and make vaccines against the variant and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's conceivable we'll get to the point where the virus is sort of boxed in somewhat and it, it can't really get to the next change it wants to because it's, it's down a long path of variation that we're driving it right now. I'm hand-waving here, but I'm hand-waving because we don't know what the future is and we don't know how genetically constrained this virus is. But it's possible we'll get to a point where the virus calms down with respect to its extent of variation. But a big part of that is going to be what environment this, this virus finds itself into. So if, if the environment changes over time, we've got 100% immunization. I'm just dreaming here. And uh, pretty high resistance. The virus can replicate in some people, but not very well. Uh, and it doesn't really have a, a couple of mutations or 20 mutations it can make that really can jump over the biological hurdle it needs to sort of become a, the, the new variant that takes off into this immune population. You expect that it's going to become less variable and more settled into a happy virus that replicates seasonally with us, uh, causes one of the common colds and doesn't necessarily put so many people in, in the hospital. Uh, though it's that's largely a, re a relationship between this virus and our human population going over time with us manipulating continuously. We're using therapies, we're using vaccines. And uh, hard to say, but I expect at some point we should get some more stability, but uh, time will tell. So basically we're gonna be dealing with booster shots 
for the foreseeable future when it comes to SARS-CoV-2, kind of like what we have for the flu right now. Sounds like it, I think. I'm pretty sure we're going to have a virus that constantly evolves and we're going to have to tweak our vaccines constantly to try to keep them matching. You know, the viruses like measles, mumps, rubella, we've had a vaccine for that uh, since the end of the, the 60s. And none of those viruses has gone on to generate a variant that, that ducks our immunity. And so all those viruses are RNA genomes. They live as a quasi-species that any point mutation can affect immunity somewhat. But they've never been able to put together those group of, of mutations to, uh, to escape our immunity. So I think uh, flu and coronavirus have put themselves in categories where they have a lifestyle and a biology that allows them to do rather large changes in their and the receptor binding protein that can mess with our immunity. So I think we're going to be playing catch up with coronaviruses pretty much unless we can develop the, uh, the silver bullet. And that silver bullet obviously is the universal vaccine. We've been looking for it for years with the flu. Do you think we're also going to get there for SARS-CoV-2? Well, I think if we do get there for flu, and, and signs are that we're getting closer, that we may get there for coronavirus. So maybe let's back up to flu, the universal flu vaccine. So they've now got vaccines and maybe to back up a bit further, influenza vaccines are directed to its receptor binding protein, which is the hemagglutinin. It binds to red blood cells. And so they call it hemagglutinin. And so this virus binds on the tip in its structure, its receptor looks very much like COVID-19 virus receptor. If you look from a distance, it's got a big bulky head on a stalk. And so the, the, the head of it binds to the host cell as the first step of entry into the cell. And the second step is that the head falls away and the stalk that holds the head turns into a spike and sticks it into the host cell and pulls the virus membrane in together. That's the fusion property. And so they, both of these viruses do that, uh, SARS-CoV-2 and influenza. Uh, and they found in influenza, the antibodies to this stalk are generally able to bind to many flus and they've got certain antibodies to the stock that can bind to all the flus. And so these are the basis of a universal vaccine where you can take a vaccine and prevent all influenza infections. They're not there yet. They've got certain vaccines that can uh, prevent most influenzas, but not all of them. So if they can solve that problem in flu, they may be able to take the same approach and solve the problem in SARS coronavirus number two. That brings us to the end of the discussion, but I'm sure we haven't answered all of your questions about COVID-19 variants. Tweet me at jatetro or email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. You can also head over to speakpipe.com sass and post your audio question there. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Earl Brown. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Deal of Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week, stay safe, and as always, make sure to show them some sass.